Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we discuss leadership and strategy in data science, machine learning, and AI. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for listening in. Today, we are speaking with Andrea Alameyer-Stubb. She is the Director of Strategic Analytics at ServicePro, and she is based in Germany. Andrea has a super interesting background where she started in marketing analytics in the late 80s and went on to start her own business, become a speaker, an author in the space, and has worked with clients across Europe, US, and Asia. She has a a wealth of experience. I had a lot of fun speaking with her. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Here's the conversation with Andrea. Great. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Andrea. Andrea, thank you so much for making the time. How are you doing today? It's fine over here. We have a perfect spring morning, so I'm really looking forward for a great day and that's perfect start in the day. That is excellent. And um, tell us, whereabouts are you based? Where do you live? I live in Germany in the Black Forest area in a very small town called Gengenbach. It's very touristic, but I guess nobody knows it so far. So maybe to look, make location easier, it's quite near to Strasbourg. Ah, which is beautiful. It's such a beautiful area everywhere around the Black Forest. I absolutely love it. I visited there a couple of years ago and then I could see why there were so many stories written about the Black Forest. It's such a beautiful area. And then you look in, you can't see anything into the forest. So you can definitely get a feeling like as if something could come out of the forest. Yeah, that's a forest bed, but something you also should consider is the vineyards, the really nice, warm and mild climber. So let's tell tell that story yesterday afternoon. In Europe, it's early spring. We had a nice coffee on our terrace, the full family. So it was very warm. It was about 25 degrees and that's astonishing for the 16th of March. Normally, you expect around 8 to 9 degrees. So other parts of Germany where lines are located. It's a bit chilly for them. They need a jacket and we just sit outside. Yeah, enjoy the beautiful weather and views. That's amazing. I wanted to ask you, how did you get started in the world of data? What was it that brought you into it in the first place? If you go back to the deep roots of it, it was in class 11 when I was encouraged by my maths teacher to study statistics. So it was in wow. the early 80s, and I start, then I, after my A-level in 85, I bring myself to university to study statistics and probabilities and as a sub-subject, computer science. So if you Fantastic. call that in that way, that was far before the word data scientist was developed. That's right. Yes. And was it was that a surprise for you to get receive that recommendation from your teacher to study statistics? No, not really. It was absolutely helpful uh, advice, but it was clear that I want to do something with maths. But maths itself what was too, it doesn't see the business impact in it. Mm. But I have no clue to come from the ta- scientific maths aspect to the more how to use the data, how to use the results to make money out of them, to make uh, companies more profitable, getting more success, however you say. And then my maths teacher, she comes up with that solution. She said, oh, there's a, new, there's a study in Dortmund at that time. The faculty was just six, seven years, eight years old, something like that. Mm-hmm. So that might be a solution. And then I start digging and inform myself and that was pretty clear. As soon as my A-level is done, I start uh, with statistics. Incredible. 
And then how has your career panned out since then when there's been this rise of data as well as statistics? Believe it or not, I'm, I'm in a bunch of data since my studies. So after my first three years, you know, in Germany at that time, we had the old system of a diploma system where you have mm-hmm. a sub-degree and then the full degree. And after reaching the sub-degree, I started a student assistant in the Institute of Journalism to turn words in data. So much before... Really? Yeah, before that mining, tax mining starts, it was one of my jobs to think about methods to apply existing methods to support a project from the ministry. Home office is the British term of it. In German, it's in ministerium. To what is the impact of journalism to specific scientific themes and how is it spread to have it on a quantity level, not only on a quality level. And that wow. was wow. I was part of that team and I did my master thesis on that as well. So that's when I started and from there the journey goes on. So I never reached that level most of my friends from my year go to, to pharmacy, to agriculture, things where you have a lot of DOE, where you have plant data. That is not my subject. I was every time in this explore inside, thinking about new grabbing data, think about turning data. Yeah, from that point in the journal, in the journalism, I go. I did a small thingy to health, um, where I was also asked to evaluate as a student assistant or be part of the evaluation for a health score. Uh-huh. Like what is as a helping hand for doctors and nurses to decide what should go on with the patient next. And that I started from there. So that was predictive modeling, as it is called now. At that time, it was just some kind of predictive statistics. And then from there, I go to the mail order houses. Really? In 94, I started a job at that time at the third biggest mail order houses in Germany. And there you have... I think it was about 6 million customers. And they wow. had this operational, transactional data of 6 million people 15, 20 years back. So we're speaking yeah. 94 years. Think, you know, Iman stated his famous warehouse definition, 92. And guess I was part of the group of people developing the first data well for that. So since wow. this time, I'm in big data. So if somebody told me at that early time, oh, we have a big data set, it's about 1,500 data I said, what? That's less than a sample. We can't work with that. <laughs> <laughs> So data uncertainty and operational data. So is something that is on my journey the full time, let's say that way. So it's every time this balance between how is the data generated, what Mm. is hidden in the data but not stored. And mm. today it's still the same. So you need domain knowledge about what's happened in the market, what were the activities of the companies, what are their products, what are the guidelines, are they all these kind of thingies, and then the methods. 
So you have to balance this triangle. So my journey was going on in mail order houses, business to customers, business to business. And then I started my own business on that as a consulting business with uh, some employees. And in 2012, we were asked by a big client of us to join their team. And since then, now we're working for Service Pro in München as a strategic director of analytics. But I'm Amazing. I'm still in everything related to marketing. And I was part of this, let's say, renaming journey from database marketing to analytical CRM to big data analytics to predictive modeling. However, the next buzzword will come up. That's pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, what an amazing journey. Yeah. And I can see why you would be attracted to marketing analytics because you like to see the business impact and obviously drive results through analysis and numbers and data. Do you feel that, that marketing analytics, is that something you feel you fell into or is it something that you chose to pursue in an explicit way? I think it's in the way as my journey started, it was a natural outcome. And mm -hmm. in this very early times, it was the only area where they are open to this kind of solutions in the mail order thingy, because that mm. was the only chance to target the customers right. So it was a natural starting point. But in the last, I would say, Five to six years, a lot have happened in industry as well. So there is a change in approaches from planned scientific generated data as you do it in DOEs, in simulated computer experiments and other things. Mm -hmm. They are swapping to the aspect using more the operational data. That's not my business part, but in my in my private side, in the for my brain, I'm doing a lot of work in that industry field as well. So anything around industry 4.0 is very interesting. I did a lot of work in health aspects to see results out of image processing from cell scans, something like that. But that's more wow. to keep my brain flexible. Yeah, how to tell it? It's good if you have perfect ideas for methods and for data, but you have every time a really is a challenging part, and that is the person with the money and the decision in a company. They are not convinced by you. Their decision gives them much more revenue. They wouldn't do it. And sometimes they step back to be on the secure side mm. so of, a, of a tricky thing. So let's say if this for early example, if you have six million customers and you have to print a big book at that time because Internet was not that feasible for everybody, then it's a different way you print a big book cost you, let's say, 10 day mark, let's say five euros at that time. For six million, it's a hell of a lot of money. And if you can mm. prove that you only need four million to have the same business aspect, because these are the two millions and they will never order again, it has a big impact. So with 100, mm. that's the one side. You predict that, you tell them the story, you show that in example. But then there will be at least one manager in the room that say, but what happened if they are wrong? We can save up the catalogs, the big books for 2 million, uh, for two million people. That is a hell of a lot of money, 10 million. Uh -huh. 
we should be on the sure side. You know, it's just a project, just, just statistics. So only let's save a million books. And you have this kind of people in the full mm. industry, and that's something that hasn't changed. Even with the discussion now, with data science being the hot thingy, it's not changing. People say, oh, be on the sure side, not doing it the full recommended way. And that makes it a bit more crucial in everything around marketing and sales. That's a different approach in industry because there is the risk is different and you can cut down hours of manpower. And they are more willing to risk that than to risk potential profit on client side. It's a difficult thing. It is. And why do you think that people find it difficult to change, even through the hype and even data has been pushed or data analysis has been pushed as as a solution to so many decisions and a way to improve? It's so interesting to still find so many managers that are unwilling to make the jump and trust the the data and the analysis. What do you think holds them back and how do you deal with those scenarios when you encounter them today? I think that what holds them back is it's a bit a question of cover my ass personal thingy. Don't they don't want to risk something. And if you can say to your boss, because all of them have a boss as well, or the shareholders if you're on the top of the line, then you can say, oh, like we handled it the last years, you're a bit more secure than to say oh, we did something totally new. And we know there is a slightly risk that something could be wrong, but the majority gives you other device. So that is this not risking your own position mentality. So there you are big difference whether you work for a company that is owned by a person or a family than is owned by shareholders. That's one aspect. And the other aspect is, I think it goes a bit back to the not as good recognition of data science and statistics for a mm. lot of economic people because they are forth in their study to handle that kind of issues. And a lot of them are not happy on their results. So they feel insecure is not proven. They love to have the view back. They are a lot investing a lot in controlling and business intelligence issues. But that's every time the view back. You can see I was successful last half year. But that doesn't mean that you might be successful in the next time. You know, don't see the rising things. Mm. And you need data science to see the rising things and to see how people will slightly develop. Even all of us know also data science only can analyze data that has happened means it's back as well. Or you do some kind of, you combine it with design of experiment and then you start testing things and looking what might be in the future and run really lab situation. That's a different approach, but can be combined very successfully. We have a lot of examples on that. So that you nice. combine those, uh, those uh, attitudes and then use the technologies from, let's say, predictive modeling and or more or less use supervised learning aspects to see what is the lookalike of the people who are positive to that experiment on a future product or give you future ideas. How do they look in my um, my customers? What is their data trace? So we can trace them. We can use them for future offers. Nice. And do you have any examples or any uh, case study that you could share about how you used experiments, supervised learning to create the, the groups and then rolled out a, an initiative? 
Yeah, I can't, but I'm not allowed to tell client names. So yeah, just on, on the branch level. And uh, I, as I worked a lot in the marketing area, it's clear marketing example. But uh, one of the setups is really a very easy one, a complete new product just designed on the communication. And this communication is sent out to a specific sample. And then we collect the responses on that, whether the people appreciate that product or deny it somehow, whether they want to order it or not. It depends on the, how it is set up. And then we can learn from that. So because we use for the uh, sample only people we know where we have the full data trace. And then we mm -hmm. start to do a modeling on that. That's a pretty easy forward aspect. We use this kind of technology also for price testing mm -hmm. and uh, channel testing. Because in the different channels, you have to know that you have different responses. And you have to combine it, but you have to see the full sales funnel. It's easy to say, oh, we have a big conversion by email because a lot of people opened it. But that doesn't sell. You have to go down to the sold product. And you can combine that very easily. The major technique is every time taking a good sample, maybe a stratified sample from your potential customers or from your existing customers that mm -hmm. looks like those who might be interested in your products. Then start with a treatment, could be an interview, could be an offer of the product, could be a price test challenge test could be a combination out of it using DOE aspects, seeing the results and then from the results and the raw data that happened before, start the modeling and use that when the product rise to, is ready for the market. That's a very, very easy and straightforward aspect. Other aspects are imputation and then simulation. And that can have a huge impact to almost any business that is applied to, is that right? It can be used in every business. The only difference is the domain knowledge you have to have. And this domain knowledge should be used in the way the data is structured. But even if you have unstructured data, you have to somehow that the um, methods can work. It's not this artificial intelligence can do everything or this neural network will save the world. That's not the point. The point is you have to add somehow your domain knowledge, the not written down knowledge around to the data, and then you have to structure them optimal for the methods. And you have to know, is it just for a one-shot thingy or is there any kind of likelihood that this model will be used in future again? If it will be mm -hmm. used in future again, it must be much more robust than if it is just a one-shot model. I think a lot of people still forget this old rule that the data you should use for prediction to develop the predictive model should be somehow similar to the data situation when it will be used. Even this data situation is just half a second ago, yeah. uh, half a second in future or something like that, or maybe four weeks in future. For an automotive client, for example, we do prediction on car sales based on marketing communication, pure marketing communication without the dealer or the job of the communication is to put the people on the, to bring them to the dealer. There is a break of 10 weeks on the production side. So from the moment when we do the prediction until the moment when the communication is on the market, it's 10 weeks. So wow. it is not worse to think about what's happened yesterday on that data. You have to think on different data structures because you see that with the actual corona crisis or other things. Yeah. That's a really extreme example. And I'm sure 
know our models will not work actually very good. But in normal businesses, you didn't know what's happened with your competitor. Is there any launch? Is there any marketing activity? Is anything highlighted? And so this kind of model has to be really robust. Mm. On the other side, if you have a self-learning, if you developed a self-learning machine or some kind of a generator of models that just on having targeted web ads, which are maybe on the market for a week, then it's this is not a problem. You must not think about future and robustness and anything like that in the same way. Yeah, that's what you were saying before about the one-shot use, like one-time use versus an ongoing yeah. a model that is used in an ongoing manner to make a difference in the business. And with the automotive example, why did it take 10 weeks or why does it take 10 weeks to get the, the communication out? In this case, it's a question of the agreed processes. The people we choose that are valuable to be part of the communication has to go through several manual processes and all these steps, all this position has to agree that they mm. agree with that person. So we have every time to overselect people and then they have the right to draw people out. And that wow. means you may know it from your own business. If person are involved and you need a decision, it's never done in five minutes. Yeah. If you need an if you send out any kind of a communication and need an answer, it's easy that it needs a day. So in this several leveling steps, so it's nearly ten weeks. Yeah, wow. And what is your level of involvement during those 10 weeks? Do you need to be very active or is it something that you hand over and the process is followed by other people? We hand it over and then the process is followed and we are only back in the field later on after the campaign to see what are the success factors. Are we right? Is the prediction on a good level? Needs a model Perfect. to be renewed? Anything like that. Yeah, that's really good. And I was very interested to hear that you started your own business at one point, that you went from being an employee to a business owner. What led you to make that jump? At that point, it was a bit, it was in the late 90s, early 2000. I think 99, I started my business. There was a rising market for that kind of issues. And mm -hmm. on the other hand, the company where I was involved with was a very It's not strict at that time. All the companies intend to hide database marketing, now called data science paper. Sometimes you are not allowed to go to conferences. Sometimes you are not allowed to communicate with people in other companies. So I was a bit, I want to have a different scene. On the other hand, I had a very good offer to be part of a data warehouse uh, project in Japan. And that was very interesting. So I decided to go that way. And it was a real, it was the right decision for over 12 years. Wow, that's amazing. And so did you have the contract lined up with Japan? Was that an offer that came before you started the business? And it's something that it comes before you could start? It mm -hmm. comes before I start the business. And uh, so it was also one of the triggers to give me that uh, decision or to enable Fantastic. me to do that decision. That's fantastic. And how was that experience? How long did you go for and What did you do? It was a um, very, very interesting project. And we only were, most of the time, we can have the chance to work from here, from the normal desk at home. Nice. But we have to be there. I would say it was a week, every six weeks, something like that. Yeah. Sometimes two weeks was a bit, it depends on the project development. And mm -hmm. it was very interesting, very interesting. Under, under, for me personally, under two aspects, that... 
for me, yes, Japan was different, but not as different as I expected it. Wow. Every time, what's your personal setup? So I've noticed that there are a lot of similarities in the working habits as you have it in Germany. And Japanese mail order house, because it was a mail order house, was absolutely has the same kind of organization, how the offices are. So for specific things with my mail order uh, knowledge and the way as people, the work process is ongoing. So it was like feel being at home. Clear. I was not able to read the signs. I only have to, it's like memory. You remember that is the setup of signs and whether you find the same signs again, it should be the same word. That's the, and I was not able to speak to them. I started to learn a bit of Japanese just to be able to order a beer myself, to introduce myself, not, not on the conversational level really, but just on the polite level. So there are this very strange, very different country on one side. On the other side, a lot of things that sound absolutely similar to me. When I was before in the US, I had this very different feeling. I say, okay, they're just uh, less than 300 a year that they start to split up. But in a lot of things, in working habits, in the way they handle their life, how companies organize, they're very different to German companies. So that was a strange experience. You know that you have shared a lot of history together and that it mm. is in detail seeing the big migration movements from Europe to US in the 19th century. It's more or less 150 years ago that the majority of people leaves Europe to enter the US. They developed a very different scene, comparable with Japan, having no roots at all in common, different religion, not the same culture-based thingy on old Egypt, Mesopotamian, Roman, Greek, Mm -hmm. something like that. Nothing like that, totally different roots. But there was, in the 19th century, a strong relationship to the German emperor from the Japanese emperor. Really? And you see that trace. It's so interesting. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that was uh, very challenging. And I'm looking forward to the next project in Japan, let's say it that way. <laughs> of course, of yeah. course. That's so interesting. Obviously, looking at it from an outside perspective, I can think of is that something that Germany and Japan share is the love for efficiency and being very good and very diligent in your efforts and your pursuits and your industries. And I wonder if that's something that joined you and created similarities in different processes. Because, yeah, I don't think of the US at that level of efficiency as I think of when I think about German efficiency and Japanese efficiency. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's a common link. I'm not sure. It was just this feeling, you know, when you arise and you have the feeling that a lot of things work like home. Different. I expected that feeling in the U.S. Even and I got that feeling in Japan. And I say that's strange. Very strange. So strange. Yeah. So strange. For example, is is different to that. And what was the work that you were doing in the U.S. and in China? In the U.S., it's also in in marketing issues and together with other agencies and then a lot of conferences. 
that early time there was a quite good set of conferences in the USA still got a lot of good conferences and then in China it was also for client side we work for a big client we have in Germany also um, for the China branch and there we worked with yeah. the colleagues over there and then you see the different attitudes as well what in that professional aspect so maybe yes. I judge it wrong because I only know the business side it's not the holiday friendship personal family side there might be different. Mm-hmm. and what were some of the differences that you saw between the german part of the business and the chinese part of the business the thing i noticed is that the colleagues in china are much more keen on title so they name people let's say data scientists who are just not afraid under some sign so or you are just able to do some kind of create an excel people then you can name just a data scientist that's a different thing you have that in i noticed that in india as well maybe mm-hmm. If people career chances, maybe it's a different thingy, but title are important, but the title normally doesn't reflect the same kind of knowledge as you have behind the title in Europe. Interesting. And so do you think that that focus in title has brought on almost like title inflation in the sense that you have maybe higher titles for people that might be more junior if they were in different markets? People are named with titles or tagged with titles. If you don't know the culture background, you expect much more seniority, much more knowledge, much more experience than they have. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that at all. And did they have different ways of working or different ways to approach the work that you saw? In that limited window, I noticed it because mm-hmm. that's difficult to say that's for everybody. Mm-hmm. I got the feeling that the ability to rethink data and to add domain knowledge and to connect data to each other, not that developed as it should be, but they might have two sources. The one source is, is that you have quite junior people. They, by definition, they can't have this experience. Mm. And if they don't get it told from somebody else, where should it come from? And if you don't have the personality to ask, so it's a difficult stuff to decide. Yes, that is really interesting. Having um, had any professional exposure into China, it's something that I'm very interested to do. That's really interesting. When you went into starting your own business, was there anything that surprised you? Anything that you didn't expect? Anything that you felt that it was different to or maybe that you were unprepared for in starting your own business? You mean a part of tax and business organizational aspects? No. <laughs> This, you know, this normal uh, thing I expected yeah. that there are lot of yes. um, pitfalls, but there are some more. So you have to be clear and you have to think about it. And it's really worse to have a tax consultant or paper and ask mm. them to help you. Otherwise, you have a lot of administrational issues. And sometimes the way seems to be longer than it is a reality. But no, not really. I know that it will be hard to get uh, new clients. It will be hard to Uh persuade people on the value of the analytics, how they can see the impact and the results out of it. So that was clear difficult. And it's Uh clear difficult to advertise yourself. 
Yes. Because everything I had worked with before, normal direct marketing approaches, email marketing approaches, call center approaches, can't. it's not possible to use them for that kind of consulting business. You can do, but it will cost you a lot of money. It's not very effective. So it's uh-huh. much better to position yourself as a speaker, being a lot on conferences, having a great network. So not being an expert, that's clear, you have to be that, but also being seen as an expert. So mm-hmm. for that reason, and because I'm a real network person, I've worked in a lot of societies, that's European Center of Data Business Marketing. I'm very active since 20 years in EMBIS, that's European Network for Business and Industry Statisticians. Mm-hmm. I worked for the Chamber of Commerce as an advisor for the exam questions for IT consultants, mm-hmm. give lectures at universities, all that kind of things and yes. yeah as you know having together with Shirley Coleman two very successful books and the two of you are aware of them yes the uh, but you should tell us about your your books the first book it was an idea Shirley and I had quite a long time in the first hard te- years of the 2000 that it is really necessary to write a textbook on data mining that is much more applied than all the stats and maths textbooks or the view that you have from the computer science departments mm-hmm. because you have to see it from the case side and you have to enable the people to see the full story, not only concentrating on a specific random forest algorithm that's interesting, but mm-hmm. may not catch the fish. So it's a better thingy. So we decided that we need a practical guide on data, on data mining and half of the book is on data preparation and statistical method explaining it. And the other half comes like a like a cookbook with recipe with cases. So we put in I think it's ten or eleven cases with the situation that we say we describe that. We describe it in a case where so if a business manager comes to you with that question, what to do, which data to grab, what to ask him, what mm-hmm. methods to use, what is a potential outcome. All the cases follow the same way. And this book is published by Wiley. It's mm-hmm. very The first one was Arise on the Market in 2014. It's easy. Have your books around. Do your own Exactly. (laughs) Yes, yes, you're going to show us. So a practical guide to data mining. That is the practical guide in data mining. Beautiful. Everybody can see it. I like with the, the cookie cutter. You know that it's about this cookbook example. Yes. And uh, really the structure is, the big issue is the case issue where yeah. you have a real description how to do it. And the cases are structured for industries. So you can see what is the job to do and you can search for different activities and cases. Yes. So marketing prediction, for example, intra-customer analysis, learning from small sample testing, the aspect you have if you have just a couple of, 100 clicks on something, but 30 million people who got the treatment, how to learn from that and Mm -hmm. all these kind of things. And the other book that arises in 2018 is Data, also together with Shirley. And that is more a level above, less statistics, also a lot of cases, but it discusses more the aspect is how to squeeze money out of the data. 
from two aspects. One from the customer aspects. So what's the value of the data you give in for free to have services subscribe here, giving you this data, do uh, having this app here, having the Facebook there, and all this kind of thing. So you donate your data and you get something in return. So mm-hmm. that means you have to be sure what's the value of the data. That's one side. The other side is to make companies aware of the value of their data they have already in store. Most of the time they have to store store it for legal purposes or for guarantee mm-hmm. purposes and how to use them as well. For example, in industry, it's very important that people notice they have a hell of a lot of data and they can use this kind of data to optimize the products or to optimize the production lines and not only bit by bit, seeing it on the long run. If you go to industry, it's a bit more, um, we can explain it in marketing as well. I will explain it on both levels. Let's say go for the marketing level first. You know, the customer journey thingy, starting with awareness. What does it mean on data science level? It's for a data scientist. Yeah, shit. You can't pin it down to Philip, for example. You only know if you're in the right country and if it is allowed and if Mm -hmm. people accept cookies that there was a certain device searching on your websites, using your apps, using your online services. If you are just attract people by a shopping window, you know nothing. No data trace. Just a bit from a market research, somebody being on a certain high street, counting people stopping in front of the window, but then you never know, are they just hurting legs or are just interested? That's one. And then you go on in that journey. And as long as people haven't identified themselves for sub-services like a newsletter, like an alert system, like uh, something like that, you have no personal data trace. And if you see it from that line, it's important to speak to the colleagues in marketing if they set up, for example, a newsletter thingy to ask for more than just for an email to be able to identify the people later on. Because I guess you do the same as I do, as millions of people are around. We maintain more than one email address. So we have an email address we use for this newsletters thingies. Mm-hmm. We have business email address. We have an email address for private exchange. So all of us have at least three. Some of us have five, six, seven, eight. Yeah. Thingy. So if you have not my name, my name is quite unique, but other names are not that unique. You never bring it back to each other. Exactly. So you have to have this kind. You have to have data traces. You have to see if, if you have a link in the newsletter. It has to be stored. And if it goes on to a landing page, for example, and what's happened from there to the shop. So people have to be aware of this connections in between different steps. That is a different thinking because mm. in different steps, different departments are involved and they normally don't speak to each other. They need the data scientists and the data people to make them aware that there must be a, a fluent data river through the process. And in industry, you have the same. The raw material arrives at, uh, at the industry. It's reported. It's documented. Sensors on there. Then it goes to the first production step. Also recorded on everything like that. But the uh-huh. jump, let's say this piece of timber, this certain piece of timber was part of a bunch, but you doesn't know for the next step exactly which timber it is, which bunch it is, might be uh-huh. interesting for further 
situation. For example, if you want to improve your um, quality by having early productions, it might be interesting to know what has happened before that step comes. So with mm-hmm. every production step, it might be as a situation that the data isn't really integrated to the next one. So you can't trace it back or you only can trace it back on a really single side hands-on as it is enough if you have a guarantee case. But it's not a good idea to have that on that level if you want to do any kind of analytics because the data scientists can't grab themselves with every record and find the trace. You have something automated. So that are issues Mm. people have to address. And I think that is the biggest challenge we have in any kind of analytics. And people, actually, I got the feeling they are not really concentrating on that bit. They just see the fancy method, they just see the amount of data, but they have no idea that, for example, they lose a track of the piece they want to target. Mm -hmm. It doesn't use all the data that is already there because it's not integrated to each other. It's very true. People don't put enough focus and importance in that crucial step because it feeds everything that you can do down the line. So, so interesting. That's one of the topics that you that you highlight in your second book. That is one of the things we highlight in the second book. There are also the things that there is a lot of open data available in the market that should be mm. used because it's already there that you can develop business ideas out of that as well. That's important. Yes. And we also address some ethics aspect that you have to think about. Independent of what nice. your decision is, first you have to think about it and then going a step further. So again, first 40% is a bit on data and methods and what is structured and unstructured data, what is no SQL, all this kind of thing so people understand the buzzwords. But Mm -hmm. it's really written for people that are not a studied statistician, computer expert, data scientist, physics, maths people. It's more written for those who like to use it in business Mm -hmm. to think about it. Really, really nice. And what led you to write the books? Why did you decide to do that? First, we see this problem in the market. And it's one thing to complain about it. It's one thing to address it in seminars. (laughs) Talks is another thing to do something, I guess. (laughs) Exactly. It's a big commitment, right? It is, but it was a lot of fun as well. And it makes yourself to rethink other things as well. So that's one thing. And another thing is also a bit, um, it convinces people more that you are an expert if you have a book published, good and well-known and well-recommended publisher, then you can write on your website everything. And a lot of people are there out writing a lot of things they can do. And really, in the last 10 years, I see a lot of problems in companies caused by people calling themselves expert on data analytics with the actual buzzword every time on it. And then they destroyed the theme because they the value of their analytics and the outcome, the business outcome, was not um, related to the costs. The full field is destroyed. And then it needs a long time to build the trust up. And their book is also very helpful. Yes. 
Very true. Thank you for doing that. Very glad that you took the plunge and made the effort and wrote the books that needed to be written once you saw the gap. Yeah. I think that's excellent. Andrea, I'm going to be respectful of your time. I'm just going to ask you one last question, and that is, what is a piece of advice that you would have for listeners out there who are working in the data analytics space and that they would like to have a good career to have impact in the businesses that they work in? What would be something that helped you or has helped you during your career or something that you would like to share with them? I would say the a part of that being aware where the data comes from, the most important thing is sell your work. Don't tell anybody about the beautiness of a certain algorithm and the scientific approach. Just tell them where the money is. The leaders will follow the money. And if you can show them where they do more profit or they have benefits for their own position or benefits for shareholders, then they are happy with everything you do. They don't care about the methods. They only need the methods to somehow bully it a bit. Being on the golf course, tennis court, in the yard, yard uh, haven to play a bit bullshit bingo, but they're not really interested in the beautiful, nice methods. As the data scientist, to be successful internally, you have to concentrate on yourself to see what's happening on the method side, what are new ideas you have to be in a constant exchange with other people in the field or follow the literature, what's published. But to be successful in the company, it's more selling yourself and showing how money money you save or win for the company and what are mm-hmm. potential customers. So it's a both-sided thing. But I know a lot of data science people intend to look at the methods and the beautifulness of their data lakes and all these things. And I have to be sorry, but most of the leaders don't care. Very, very true. And I think that is wonderful advice. Excellent note to end on. Andrea, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your journey and your insights. It's been an absolute, absolute blast. Thank you, Philip, for inviting me to be part of it. And I'm yeah, happy to support it. And I still love to do my job. Perfect. Thank you so much. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubix, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands. Growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US, Rubix are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, Head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's wearerubix, all one word, wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. 
please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.